All right, thank you for all of us, for all of us, for all of you joining us uh, online through our streaming, through Facebook, YouTube, whatever platform you find yourself. If it's through our podcast experience, we're so glad that you are joining us. And we encourage you to like and share this content wherever you can uh, so that it can bless more people. And then, of course, I'm always thankful for those of you that are here in the building, in the house. There is no replacement uh, for the real deal audience. Well, audience is the wrong word. You guys aren't here for a show or a spectacle. Uh, there's no substitute for real deal communion, for real deal fellowship. Uh, you know, the, the digital world, as beautiful as it is, it's no substitute. Uh, so I, I want to jump in to this series we just started last Sunday. It's called Family Matters. And again, I would encourage you to go and watch that session if you haven't seen it yet or you can listen to it. Uh, and we talked about the God family. And what we did, we, we really made the case uh, for Again, the purpose of family, what family is set out to accomplish, and then we had to talk about God as Father. And I think it's so interesting, uh, we, we touched on this within Scripture, uh, the, God was called Father about 13 times in the entire Old Testament. Uh, which is a lot of time and a lot of books and a lot of experience. But it's so interesting, there were very few that had the courage or the audacity to claim God as Father. But then in the New Testament, something radically shifts. Jesus refers to, to God as his Father 130 times just himself. Uh, and then more than 30 times, he's referred to as our Father. So not just a singular expression of Father, but a corporate expression of Father. You know, again, I, I love that thought in, in what we call the Lord's Prayer when Jesus starts with that phrase, Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father was a counterculture stance for that day. Because especially within the Jewish system, with, within that, that whole, uh, you know, religious oppressive system, there was no claim of, of God as the Father, right? And so Jesus says, okay, when you guys pray, I want you to talk, be talking our Father everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. And, and again, it, what's so radical about that statement, he wasn't just saying you can't just claim him as your Father. He's everybody's Father. So whether you meet someone who's Jew or not, it doesn't matter. He's our Father. You meet a Samaritan woman, our Father. You, you, you meet a Pharisee, our Father. Right, uh, And so it was a radical statement that Jesus intentionally charged his disciples with. right? And then he begins to lay out the fundamental experience of what the kingdom of God looks like and his disciples follow suit. Uh, so Jesus is very much a counterculture figure. But a lot of times we don't look at that statement, our father, as being so counterculture. But it certainly was for that day and age. Now, aren't you glad today that we can talk about the Father with confidence? We can relate to him personally. And then perhaps you're struggling with that. You know, I encounter people a lot of times that they struggle with that concept of God being their Father because, again, they project their daddy issues onto our Heavenly Father. Uh, and, and I mean project, especially if you had a bad uh, father experience, a bad dad experience. There's this expectation we project on God. Um, 
And, and God's just, he, he's simply not your dad, not in that capacity. He's so much better than your natural father could ever be. Why? Because our heavenly father will never operate out of a place of hurt. He never operates out of a place of suspicion. He never operates out of a place of a hidden agenda. He is simply for you, always. He's for you. And so you got to trust his fatherhood. Now, to say that, that... You know, if I'm not careful, I will amputate. There's another half to that experience. You also have to embrace your sonship, right? You can't say he's father if you still feel like you're uh, an orphan. If you still own that you don't have a place to call home or you don't have a family or you don't have a father, it's hard to call him and truly buy into that he is your father. So again, go back and watch it. I said more than I should have said in recapping that. So in session two today, we're going to continue in family matters, and we're going to be talking about husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. Husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. Are we ready? Okay, so the fundamental requirement for a family unit is based on the marriage of a man and a woman, okay? I know this is crazy deep revelation right now, but track with me, okay? So once marriage takes place, the man and the woman become what? One, that's an acceptable answer. They become husband and wife, right? You're not husband and wife until you've come to that place of covenantal relationship. You've professed you know, your commitment to one another, and, and then you move forward from there, right? So in our, in our Western world, we, we all require the ceremony and all these things, but you guys all do know that all you really need these days is a marriage license. And so legally, you just go, you profess your intentions, and then someone signs a couple pieces of paper, and technically you're married. But we know in our understanding, because it's very much about family, it's very much about inviting the father into our relationship then for us, the spiritual component, although paperwork makes it legal, in our estimation, I believe you guys would agree with me and those watching, those listening, that it is God who validates marriage, okay? Uh, and, and, uh, and so, you know, we can argue with that at some other point, but that's just where my heart is on that matter. And so you become husband and wife. And then once children play into the scenario, you become something else. You're no longer only husband and wife. So you started as a man and a woman. And then you got married, you became husband and wife. And then somewhere in the mix, kids come in the scenario. Then all of a sudden, you also become a father and a mother. So all these things, there are all these different things. There's demands being made. There's changes. There's, there's, there's things in us we didn't even know were there. There were occasions we had to rise to. We didn't even know what would be required of us. But it happens nevertheless. And so, again, I want to remind us of the order. Notice that being a father and a mother does not replace being a husband and a wife. No, no amens on that. That's okay. You know, that's something, again, Megan and I, we have to work hard at. Because with four kids, if we're not careful, all of our time will be spent on trying to be the mom and the dad. And then I forget how to be a, still be a good husband. And then there's still there's other layers I still also have to know what it is to be a faithful son to, to a good father. There's all these levels of identity that we still have to nurture and tend to. You know, there, there, have you guys, I'm sure you've heard scenarios like this. They're not uncommon where you can have a, a marriage that lasts 25 years. And when the kids move out, 
the, the husband and wife divorce because they don't know who they are anymore. Why? Well, because they put all of their heart and soul into being parents and they forgot how to be spouses. So you cannot embrace one part of your identity for the sake of another. Or we say it this way in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not either or, it's both and. When God gives you a a revelation of your kingdom capacity, he expands your capacity. He doesn't augment it. He doesn't say, oh, well, you know, you you, you had a prophetic gift, but now I'm, I'm giving you the gift of discernment, so no more prophetic for you. No, he gives you an expansion in your capacity, right? Uh, and it's the same way, just, just like what I've laid out here. A man becomes a husband, becomes a father. A woman becomes a wife, becomes a mother. God doesn't ask you to sacrifice one part of that so you can suddenly embrace another. No, he wants to give you the grace to walk in all those capacities, Right? So notice, okay, again, being a father and mother doesn't replace being a husband and a wife, but it is an addition to the multiple facets that a family expresses. Since the spousal relationship is the core for a healthy family unit, we should probably take a look at the dynamics of being a spiritually healthy couple, right? So you couples, those watching, those here, this is for you. Enjoy it. It's good stuff. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 22. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to that. Ephesians 5, 22, we're going to read the next 10 verses or so. I'm sure that we've all heard these verses before. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. I'm trying to see if I hear any urns in there. That word submit is just not a nice word, right? For the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit their hus- to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Anybody ever heard those verses before? Anybody ever heard those verses taught improperly before? Probably. I know I have many times. Because um, this is my experience Okay, I hope yours differs. If it doesn't, we can relate to one another. I hear these verses. Typically, it's from a man ministering. uh, And typically, it's of this position of, okay, ladies, uh, this is is basically on you for the most part. (laughs) You know, if there's a problem in the marriage, we need to go to the wife and see if she's submitting to the husband. That's the typical route that we go. Most of the time we don't look at, well, husbands need to love their wives, and usually a loving husband produces a respectful wife. Nobody wants to go that route. 
Or we talk about, well, you know, you, you just, you're going to have to respect him in all things. This is, this is a picture of how this works. And we always put the heavy on the female side of the relationship. And that shouldn't come as a surprise because that's how religion works. Religion always suppresses women. Always. Pick a religion. It will figure out how to make it hard on women and easier for men, right? I'm not just talking about Christianity. I'm talking, I mean, Hindu religion, uh, Islam, uh, just, just Buddhism, just go for it, right? Uh, that's why I'm so thankful that our walk, our path in following the way is not a religious expression. I heard Paul Young say the other day, I thought it was so good. I was like, man, why have I not thought of this before? He said, for, for, for religion to be established, it needs three things. It needs sacrifice, separation, and magic. That's what you need for something to be a religion. Sacrifice, separation, and magic. And he said, look how different our experience in Christ is. He doesn't demand sacrifice. He gives himself a sacrifice. No other religion does that. Separation, because there has to be a gap for you to close between you and the deity you worship, because the deity must be separate from you so you can identify it as deity. But in our experience, there's no distance, no separation. He validates us by becoming us. And then magic. What does Holy Spirit do? He makes what the world calls magic commonplace experience for the believer. We call it the supernatural. So it's anything but religion. What we do is about relationship. And that's why when it comes to family and when it comes to relationships, we have to have the answers. Why? Because our entire framework for our experience is relational. If our framework is religious, then we give really bad answers for relationships because the two don't work together. You ever notice that? Legalism doesn't work well with relationships. I've shared this analogy many times. You know, in a marriage relationship, if I got up in the morning, I said, okay, Megan, let's go over our list of do's and don'ts. Let's make sure we remind each other of our vows and we treat our day-to-day interaction as a legal obligation. Everyone in here and everyone watching and listening would say that is an unhealthy relationship, right? Yet a lot of us treat God that way. Oh God, if I just tell me what to do, tell me what, what I need, what rules I need to keep, and if I just do these things, and, and we think that is somehow non-dysfunctional, and it's very dysfunctional. Okay, I mean, what, what Paul talks about where, where the law is, there's no need for faith. Why? Because you're told everything to do. Relationship is about a faith connection, a trust connection. The law doesn't need faith, and it certainly doesn't need trust. It just needs you to do what you're told to do. You ever tried that in a relationship? It doesn't work very well. We try that with raising our kids. It doesn't work well either. Uh, I'll give you an example real quick. I'm not trying to put all of our kids' business out there. But a couple weeks ago, we, we thought we should probably put a list of rules for, uh, for screen time. So these are things they need to do before they even ask us if they can have screen time. Uh, and, and then there's a little additional thing, a little, little subset of some little rules here and there. And day one, they had already found out the wiggle room between some of those rules. Hey, we didn't say, you didn't say that. You didn't say we couldn't combine these. You didn't say we couldn't. That's how it works. I'm not saying that rules have no use. 
I'm just saying that is our tendency. As soon as we're given legalistic requirements, what do we do? We'll meet that minimum requirement, and then we'll figure out everything we can do outside of those requirements. That's why God's not interested in that. He wants relationship. He wants us to be ruled by the framework of our heart's devotion. Okay, so Ephesians 5, 20, 22 and 33, I read all those. I can't go back and read it now. Let's talk about those. So the, the, the passages I just shared with you are classically used as the godfather of what a marriage should look like. Right? A healthy marriage right there. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And then we continue from there. We see there's a picture, a connection between this is how Christ loves his church. That's how Christ is joined to his corporate body. And while there's much wisdom to be gleaned from these verses, they have suffered severe mistranslation and skewed perspective from where? From a male-dominated priesthood, right? It, listen, I, I find it's difficult for me, like, you know, you see marriage conferences advertised all the time, and there's 10 men are their panel. Okay, well, where are the women? Right? We need that perspective if we're going to talk about a healthy marriage. You guys okay? Okay. We got to be careful. For instance, the verses I just shared mention that a wife should submit to her husband. Is that correct? Is that what the verse says? Okay. I'm getting some amens uh, out there in the digital world, I believe. And so this is what can happen. So we hear that. The man hears that. And then the man assumes a domineering stance in their marriage relationship. And this is what happens. Hey, Scripture says you are supposed to submit yourself to me. We've seen that. I've been in marriage counseling sessions where that was the disposition of the man in the session. Hey, yeah, I'm not perfect, but she's got to respect me. She's got to submit to me. Okay, all right. Let's continue. We're going somewhere with this. So a lot of guys, that's their go-to verse. Hey, before, before you tell my wife that she's free to do this and that, she's supposed to submit herself to me. Okay, all right. Let's keep going. It's interesting, if that's the argument that men tend to focus on the demand for respect and they don't focus on their role to be Jesus to her. You ever want to blow up a counseling session, go that route right there. Especially if you have a man saying, I just want her to submit to me. Turn to the wife and say, would you be willing to submit to him if he treated you like Jesus? Well, yeah, I think I would. And just watch him, oh, why did I come here for counseling? That's the first thing he'll think in his heart. You see, it's interesting how we'll weaponize a single part of truth that fits our narrative. And then we dismiss the rich layers of what are shared in these passages. So you can continue there. Also, when we read these verses in context, we see that respect is a natural occurrence from the wife in a healthy marriage due to what? Tremendous love, protection, and the spiritual satisfaction that her husband produces. Wow. So all of a sudden... You don't even have to have a session about does your wife submit to you or not. If you're meeting that criteria, she's doing it naturally. 
Because you're loving her like Jesus loves her. You're protecting her like Jesus protects the church. You're satisfying her spiritually just like the Lord does. I mean, it's, guys, it's a beautiful thing, right? Now, again, that doesn't free the wife from saying, well, I'm never going to submit. She's willing to submit. You see the difference? So the man has to step up and do it. He's got to love. He's got to look like Jesus. Okay, can't get any help with this. It's all right. It's all right. So let's switch gears here a little bit. Maybe this will this will go down a little easier. <laughs> so we're talking about the healthy spouses, a healthy marriage unit. We just touched on it briefly there. This is not comprehensive at all, but we talk about that that place of mutual respect. Uh, you know, we talk about mutual submission. That's something I didn't even go into in these notes. Yeah, indeed, here it does talk about wives submitting to their husbands. Later on, it says that we're all to submit one to another. So what it's talking about, there's this canopy of submission to the family of God. We're not picking and choosing who we're going to submit to. If we can identify Christ in them, there's a level in, in my heart where I will submit. I'm going to submit to the move of the Spirit. I'm going to submit to the Word of the Lord. I'm going to submit to His presence, and I'm not going to challenge the vessel it's coming from. If I can discern that it is Christ then I would be a fool not to submit myself. Is that okay? That's like, okay. So we have healthy marriage, healthy spouses, and guess what? Healthy spouses turn into healthy parents. Again, you see those levels of how this works, these levels of identity. Healthy spouses turn into healthy parents. So once a husband and a wife learn how to flow in a healthy relationship, the possibility of being healthy parents follows. Since the love and respect we have for our spouses is the primary mentor in the lives of our children, we must understand that observation is the greatest teacher your children have. What do I mean by that? How we treat one, how Megan and I treat one another in the Hester family under our roof, their observation of our relationship is one of their greatest teachers. So Judah and Gabriel... I'm speaking specifically as sons, they should know at some level how to treat a future wife based on how they see me treat their mother. The same for the daughters as well. But also the expectations for Eliana and Ava. I want them to have a standard for how they are to be treated by a man. I want them to be so spoiled by my love and my generosity and my compassion and my leadership that they would not dream for, of settling for less. I'll, I'll share this personal. I, my girls know the path straight to my heart. I mean, Ava, I, I don't know what she's doing lately, but she's got me right where she wants me. Let's just say it that way. I mean, like today, she got up on the bed, and she's like, Daddy, you're so handsome. I was like, you're so pretty. And then she go. You smell good. I was like, well, thank you. And you know what? Megan was standing there. I said, your mom used to say that. She used to say that, you know, when, when she was in love with me and Megan's over there rolling her eyes. But she just shows the way straight to my heart. You know, and they want, they want to cuddle. Dad, I want cuddle time. I want to lay with you in the bed. I want to hug you and squeeze you and just be warm against you. And, and, and you want to... Take those moments, of course you want to live in that moment, 
But in the back of, the back of my heart, I'm thinking, whatever guy ever comes through my doorway, I'm going to remember all these times of how I spoiled my daughters. And I'm going to have to see, is there any way they can measure up? Right? So I said all that to say, observation is one of the greatest teachers that our kids have observing us. So I'm, I'm aware of the multitude of times when I've told my children what to do, but I've modeled something that's different. And I get it, that's tough, but that's, that's just reality. You know, probably you guys can relate to that. But then the question is, what do you think is the greatest teacher? Is it a greater teacher that you told them what to do or that you modeled for them what they should do? Right? It's tough. I don't want to hear it either, but I'm going to say it because it's true. Okay, so let's talk about dads for a minute. Dads, you ready? I want to talk to you specifically, fathers, just for a couple minutes here. The scripture is full of, of different imperatives, of these different nuggets of wisdom, uh, of, of how father, what fathers should do in raising their children, well-adjusted, healthy children. Okay, so here's a couple things. Number one, right out the gate, Ephesians 6, 4 says, don't provoke your children. So there's number one, don't provoke your children. Good fathers don't have to do that, don't need to do that. Um, we're just going to go down this list. <laughs> Point number two, Proverbs 22, verse 6, fathers are told to be your child's first teacher. Be your child's first teacher. 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3, we're told to exemplify a good life. Why? Your, your kids are watching. They're learning. Their observation of us as dads, as fathers, is teaching them something. So again, I want to say it this way. When we're, when we're going through this list... This isn't, well, let me just make sure I meet these requirements so I can get the desired result. No, this is about us living authentic lives that represent Jesus well for our children to observe. Now, some of it is more interactive than other parts, but right there, exemplify a good life. I can't just try to live a good life so I hope my kids are watching. That's not what a good life's about. That is doing something with a different intention or a hidden agenda. Love doesn't have agendas. Love is about acceptance and authenticity. So if I'm going to exemplify a good life, I can't simply just do it because I want my kids to observe it. No, I've got to really desire to live a good life. 1 Timothy 5.8, provide for your family. Maybe some of us have some personal stories of that growing up. You know, afraid of where the next meal may come from is difficult because lack all of a sudden becomes a teacher in our family environment. So again, this is about fathers right now. Proverbs 13, 24, discipline your children. And when I say discipline, I hope that, well, I will go ahead and say it, but I, I hope I wouldn't have to, but that's in love. In love. If there's anything that we believe about God that we can't run through the facets of love, it doesn't look like God, right? So if you can imagine God, love, right? 1 John 4, God is love. Imagine it's a massive diamond and it has all these different cuts in it. 
that, that, that do what? It actually shows us the greater value of what the diamond possesses in terms of its brilliance. So then we look, here's the love diamond. This is the God diamond. And there's a facet of that called discipline. You can't look at that facet unless it's still connected to love. So that's not our cue to be heavy-handed. It's not our cue to be uh, abusive. We discipline in love. Because of love, out of love. Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 9, invest time into your children. My goodness, this is where I am right now, my own experience. I'm aware of how fleeting time is. Judah's 15, it's, it's, it boggles my mind. And I, I, I keep thinking, I don't have much time left. Right? I'm not talking about, I mean, we're going to grow old together, right, Judah? But I'm talking about, I got to be intentional. I got to invest now because I won't have this type of time right now. I won't get it back. I've got to be intentional. I got to invest time. Number seven, Psalm 103, verse 13, we're, we're told this beautifully compassion is the characteristic of a father, to be compassionate. So healthy fathers are compassionate fathers. James 1.22, we're admonished to be doers of the word, not hearers only. So we act on it, right? Luke 15.20-24, we're told to never give up on our children. So you know there's an implication there, maybe there's some times we want to. But we're told never do it, never give up on them. And for some of us, that may mean more than it means right now. You know, for my kids, it's, it's not that hard of a conversation to have. They're all still under my roof. They still have to, for the most part, do what I say. <laughs> and I feel like I can still invest time and opportunity. But, you know, the truth is, when they become adults and they're on their own, I can't father their decisions. But at the same time, I can't allow their decisions to cause me to become a father I otherwise wouldn't be. What do I mean by that? I can't allow me being a good father to become a disappointed father because of their decisions. Or me being a loving father, I'm no longer, no longer a loving father because of their decisions. No, I have to make sure that my identity is secure, not based on how they behave, but based on who I am as a beloved son. So with that being said, I can't give up on them. Why? Because my father never gives up on me. I have to continue to believe the best. Why? Because my father's going to continue to do that for me. Okay. And finally, and ladies, you're going to get your list here, okay? First Chronicles 29, verse 19, fathers pray for their children. Pray for their children. Always having conversations. That's, you guys know that's how I define prayer. It's ongoing conversation between you and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so... Your kids are a part of that conversation. Pray for your children. Okay, moms, mothers, here's a short list of imperatives that mothers should commit to in raising their children. Proverbs 15, 14 says that mothers walk in discernment. Isn't that interesting? That's not even in the father's list. Can I tell you why? Because the Holy Spirit knows it's easier for the, for the moms to do. And it's not that 
One's a strength or a weakness. It shows us how we need each other to make this all work. Some others walk in discernment. They pick up on stuff. They pick up on stuff with relationships. Who's that friend? I want to get to know them. Something doesn't sit right with me. Or the many conversations Megan has, do you believe what they just said to you? What do you think about that? I'm like, I don't know. I'm watching TV. I don't know. Why, why are you thinking about it? I'm not thinking about it. Luke 18, verse 1, they pray for their children. Now, that's a different verse than I share for the, for the dads. For the dads, it talks specifically to fathers in First Chronicles. For mothers, it's in Luke, chapter 18. Pray for your children. 1 John 4, 18, walk in unconditional love. And my goodness, moms are so good at this when it comes to their kids. And I've seen it firsthand with how my mom loves us. Specifically, how she loves one of us, but still, how she loves her kids, it's unconditional. And I've seen some of you moms in here, some of you moms watching and listening, the the way you love is confusing at times. Doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means I can't understand it. It's, it's amazing how unconditional it is. It looks like the love of Jesus. It's amazing. Psalm 1611, mothers cultivate a joyful environment. Wow. Cultivate a joyful environment. John 20, verse 23, mothers walk in forgiveness. Wow, that's something else. Walk in forgiveness. You know, like I've shared many times, uh, you know, my parents, they taught me to forgive on credit. Uh, In other words, forgive into your future because there'll be people who are going to need it and don't wait for them to ask for forgiveness. Especially, there's so many people that will never ask. So are you going to wait for them to ask before you're going to live in forgiveness? No, you just walk in forgiveness. Uh, Proverbs 31, 27 Mothers have the ability to bring order into chaos. That's good stuff. And I think that's in more ways than one, too. Very much on the practical side, your moms tend to be more organized when it comes to the pantry, the the closet, whatever. But then also just with the schedule of life, right? Um, Goals, goal-oriented. Okay, what do we need to do to get to this goal? Bring order into chaos is such an amazing strength. Proverbs 28, 20, mothers walk in faith. Man, you talk about the gift of faith. And I know that men can carry that same gift, but most of the time, I meet women that carry the gift of faith. It's not that men don't have faith. It's just these women just carry it in ways that a lot of men just just don't go there. It's just just not how we do things. I think part of it is because the tendency of men, again, not talking about right or wrong, but well, we'll figure out a way. Okay, so, okay, this is what we need? Okay, let me figure out how I can make this happen. And the wife's like, you know what? I'm going to go to the Lord with this thing. And all of a sudden, the gift of faith produces something that we want to produce of our own strength. They go in faith. A lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, the men go in Hey, guys, this is Matthew Hester. I apologize. Our audio for this message dropped out just a couple minutes before the session ended. Uh, We could not retrieve that audio, but I appreciate you guys enjoying our podcast and being a part of this Family Matters series. We'll do our best to not make the same mistake uh, come next week. Thanks so much again for your support. It means the world to us. Bless you.